0: Hello. This is Living with Feeling, a podcast about emotions in the 21st century. It's brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. In this episode, historian of emotions Richard Firth-Godby here takes us into the world of emotional AI to find out what might lurk beneath our well-being apps and emotion trackers.
1: Science fiction is stuffed to the brim with emotion-seeking machines. From Star Trek's emotionless android, Commander Data, to Isaac Asimov's robots, filled with the desire to guide humanity, to the terrifyingly calm Hal from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Machines, it seems, are destined to become emotional in the future. But what if I told you that future was now? That emotional machines are with us, tracking us, helping politicians and advertising companies manipulate who we vote for and what we buy. Even driving our cars. You might think, hang on, in science fiction, doesn't that usually end badly? Well, yes, it does. But our own technological emotional future might not be as scary as you think. Well, not all of it anyway. Most of us are carrying a therapist around in our pockets without even realising it. Our smartphones can access an increasing number of apps whose sole purpose is to help us track and evaluate our emotions and so improve our mental health. They come in many flavours. Some are a kind of pocket journal where we can record our feelings on a scale from 1 to 10 or with an emoji. Others link to our hormonal cycle or measure heart rate via smartwatches and other tech. And these aren't fringe technologies. Emotion tracking apps are becoming so common and so numerous that the NHS recommends a great many to assist people with their mental health. Charlie Baker is Associate Professor of Mental Health at the University of Nottingham. I asked her why the NHS thinks emotion apps are so useful. They're cheap.
2: Once they're developed and out there, they're reusable. They're something that don't have a waiting list for people. Some people would find the idea of sitting in a room with someone and talking about how they were brought up or their current difficulties really awful and would be like, that's the worst thing I want to do. I think the idea of journaling and mood journaling is really therapeutic and can be really, really helpful for people. So that kind of app where you're sort of looking at where your mood swings are and that might correlate to, to hormonal changes or it might correlate to certain anniversaries. With, tra- with trauma and things. I think that can be really helpful. Um, the other thing that I think a lot of people find really helpful is things like mindfulness apps, using an app to do sort of guided relaxation, for example, or breathing exercises.
1: They also might be a practical way of making mental health services more accessible, both of those who currently use them, as well as those who really want to.
2: Mental health services is one of those things where lots of people who are in mental health services are desperate to get mental health services out of their life and lots of people who are not in mental health services are desperate to get some help from mental health services, and so it's always been that tension. So I think apps absolutely can fill a gap, and I think they will moving forwards. I think that face-to-face contact is really important, but I can't imagine us going back to 100% face-to-face when actually some of the online contact can be more accessible for people.
1: It seems like the NHS are onto something, and that emotional apps are a pretty neat idea. Even so... I thought it would be better if I found that out for myself. So, in the interest of science, I asked the historian of emotions, Professor Thomas Dixon, to get his hands dirty.
0: Okay, morning, Richard. Good morning. I gather you'd like me to help you try out a couple of apps that are going to measure my emotions or something. Is that right?
1: Yes, please. Um, There are uh, two apps in particular I'd like you to look at because they're quite different. Okie doke. Yep. The first one is called MO or Emo. E-M-M-O.
0: Okay. M-O. Emo. Got it. What's that going to do?
1: Basically, um, each day you go on there and you uh, choose the day and it asks you to pick an emoji. So you pick yourself an emoji and then it asks you to write how you feel. And over the course of a week or so, it should track your emotions and give you nice little graphs and things to show you how you felt over the week. So you can see how you feel at different times. Um, it's kind of representative of most of these apps and tend to work in this way. So that's why I've picked this one because it's... Um,
0: okay, so I'm telling it how I feel. Yes. So it, it's not like measuring uh, my heartbeat or no, my, no. The, how much I'm sweating no, or whether my voice sounds angry. I'm just telling it.
1: Yeah, you're just telling it. It's all self-reporting at this stage.
0: Okay, okay. So that's, that's emo or emo. What's the other the one? The other
1: one is called Mood meter. Mm-hmm. Now, this one is interesting because it asks you to pick your energy and how pleasant you feel. So, in other words, the two dimension factor of core effect is what it's using as its background. so it's- amazing.
0: So this is like sometimes called the circumplex model yeah. or the yeah, like you said the core effect. And in fact, the other day, we met a, a head teacher of a school who uses this in his school. The mood, and he calls it mood meter. He's got it from the Yale ruler approach. They use it as well. So this is a crossover with yeah. another one of my interests.
1: Yeah, great. Well, that's cool. Good. Okay,
0: so I go the mood meter. Is is that one a day as well? Um,
1: yeah, as often as you like in a day, and you get you have to pick high energy, um, unpleasant, high energy, pleasant, and so on. And then there's a big grid, and you have to search around for the emotion that feels most like you. So it might be hyper-motivated, lively, and it'll say cheerful, for example, and then okay. just record it.
0: But what, what do I get from it? Do I get like a weekly report or something? Most of or them a give daily? you
1: a weekly report, yes, and they'll give you a graph um, so you can track how your mood's been or your emotions have been over the week. Um, the idea is if you're plummeting downwards, you can try and use techniques to do something about it that I guess you're taught elsewhere. Um and so
0: they don't offer me that.
1: Not necessarily. No.
0: I, they just say, emo you're does a bit. Emo absolutely
1: will... terrible. Bad luck. E- M O or emo will give you some motivational quotes now and again. You'll see. <laughs> so <laughs> That's enjoy not those. Help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: what are they supposed? To, what's the desired effect? Am I supposed to feel better?
1: I think the overall idea is if you can track your emotions, you can tell when you are on a, if you like, a downward spiral emotionally and you can correct for it. It's supposed to make you feel better in the long run. Whether it does or not, we shall see. Okay. well,
0: that's very interesting. I will go away, I'll download those onto my phone and I'll report back in a couple of weeks.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Let's see how Thomas gets on. Both of the apps I asked Thomas to look at are pretty general, but some have a more specific specialist focus and define target audience. One such app has been developed by Louis Weinstock, a psychotherapist whose app, called A Part of Me, supports young people during grief and loss. It's been used by more than 90,000 people so far. Death affects us all, but we don't talk
2: about it. You don't quite realise how precious the time is until they're gone. A part of me is a beautiful world built to guide you through your darkest moments, to help you discover your own strength and wisdom, and to share in the experiences of others who know how it feels to lose a loved one.
3: Everyone else started crying, and I started crying the the last, because I was holding it in me.
4: The idea for it was born when I was working in a hospice in Hackney, and I was counselling children, young people, and families, both when somebody had a life-limiting illness and also after somebody had died. I had an interest in exploring grief and death before that through various of my own personal losses, Um, but that was the first time where I really saw how when a young person doesn't get the right support, it can really send them so badly off, off the track. So one young person i was working with at hospice i only saw him about eight months after his dad had died very sadly and he um basically was doing okay before that you know he was getting on at school he wasn't you know the best at everything but he was doing okay and then he he just went completely downhill he got kicked out of school he joined a gang he took a drug overdose he basically just ticked all of the problems of what can go wrong when you lose somebody close to you and you don't have um, that support. So it's because of that, so many experiences in that time that I decided I wanted to try and develop something that would reach young people in a format that's accessible to them at an earlier stage so that they don't already arrive in therapy already quite messed up by unresolved or complicated grief. And we... We had various co-design groups with bereaved young people. We showed them a few things that were out there in terms of charities and some apps that were out there. And they all said, this is so boring. I would never use this in a million years. And so we came up with the idea of developing a mobile game as an immersive world that would feel safe for them to explore their grief.
1: The app is a sort of a game set on a virtual island where players can navigate to different locations. The rock ball location is where mindfulness exercises take place and where players catch fireflies, which represent strong and difficult emotions they might be feeling.
4: Pressing gently on the screen as you breathe in and releasing your thumb as you breathe out. And as you breathe in, pressing gently on the screen, breathing out, releasing your thumb. No need to rush. You can go at your own pace, just
0: letting the breath be.
1: Another of the locations on the island is The Cave. Here, players can listen to stories shared by other children and young people going through similar experiences. They explain what happened to them when their parents became ill and describe special objects that keep their connection with the person that died.
3: I was doing all right. um, Well, actually, I don't think I was doing all right because that was the time that my dad told me that he had cancer. And it was at, during that time was my sister's kinda she was kinda ran away again. And then me and my dad had to go and find her. And on that point he kinda that was the first time I've kinda ever seen my dad not be able to control himself or whatever. And he was just kind of let it out. And um that was quite I just it took a bit of time to digest, I guess, but I remember that night just on the phone talking to someone but not telling them what exactly was going on. And I just remember I was in tears for, like, the whole night. So I have this ragadolly, gold, a tiny bit scratchy teddy, but I still like him. He has two black eyes, none are lost. His name is... Goldie? No. His name's Teddy, I still call him Teddy. We wrote my name down when I was going to give him to school when my dad was still alive. I still had him because that was my first teddy I got, and I still have it from that time. I mostly like hugging him and maybe sometimes scratch him on my hand because he's a little bit like. My special object is this charm bracelet from Claire's Accessories in 2006. Um, I bought it with my dad so he took me shopping and he sat down and told me to buy whatever I wanted in the shop and I chose this beautiful, I think it's stainless steel charm bracelet and chose a dice charm and a pig charm and makes me think of my dad because I bought it when I was with him.
1: A part of me isn't just about the immersive experience. It also encourages the player to make connections beyond the digital realm.
4: So just to give you an example, one of the features in the app at the moment is a quest system. So you find a bottle that's washed up uh, on the island and you receive a quest and there's a series of quests. Each one is essentially getting you to ask a question that might be... Not necessarily difficult but uh, the kind of questions that you just might avoid because when somebody's got a terminal illness everyone can get quite frozen and they want to speak about the very superficial things and it's really hard, it's incredibly hard to speak about this when you've got a parent who's dying. But the questions are things like what was your favourite memory of me as a child and uh, what was the funniest thing that you remember from your own childhood so it's kind of just getting a chance to have those meaningful conversations and build up a a memory and also to sort of prevent the sort of regret that so many people feel when somebody close to them dies. I I
0: wish I would have asked that question. I just want to have, like, just a proper conversation with him. Just ask him about his life and stuff because I've never really heard it from him. I just heard it from other people. So he would know more and more, like... So I would just want to ask him, like, how did you come here? Like, what did you do... What kind of things did you, did you do? Because then I could maybe use that to be inspired or not inspired to to make my future.
1: I lost my own father at 13 years of age. And I can imagine my teenage self finding Louis' app useful. But thinking about it made me wonder what my dad would have made of it, coming, as he did, from a different generation with a different emotional style. In the case of my dad, he would have loved the game part. He was a sports nut. But he would have seen right through the questions in the quest and found ways to avoid them anyway. Raymond Godby here was a Yorkshireman through and through. He grew up in the 60s and expressed his love for his family by working all hours providing for them, not hugging them. He didn't often open up about his feelings, and he didn't need to. It was about actions, not words for him. Having a game-based emotional tete-a-tete would have been, well, weird. My dad lived and died before the birth of the smartphone generation. His emotions and his gadgets were made in a different era. In fact, One of my most treasured possessions of his is a NAF 1980s digital watch that still offers me a physical and emotional connection back to him. In the same way, we can imagine how a terrible old phone with a cracked screen today might take on a huge sentimental value because of the experiences it has been through with us. As well as being platforms for therapy and mood monitoring apps, smartphones can become emotional objects themselves. And in that way, they are part of a much longer history. Sally Holloway is a historian of emotions and an expert on the history of emotional objects.
5: Emotional objects are things that have been invested with particular emotional value. So uh, this is by the people who create them, who buy them, uh, people who own them and the people who might exchange them as gifts. So you might make an emotional object for a specific moment, like like a wedding ring or uh, you know a blanket for a new baby. Or they might be seemingly unremarkable objects that take on these new emotional meanings by the particular ways that they're used. So sometimes things like rings are created for this specific emotional purpose. You know, they're designed to be emotionally meaningful. And other times, um, you know, objects become so over time.
1: Like my dad's cheap digital watch.
5: Objects have always provided a source of comfort for people after bereavement. You know, and that might be things that belonged to them you know, that could be smelled, for example, that retain something of their sort of essence, their humanity, or, you know, locks of their hair that will last forever. You know, people had them intertwined with locks of their own hair. So you're creating this new relic that unites both of you forever. People imbue objects with a sort of emotional essence or value in lots of different ways. So things might be used as a kind of trigger, to spark fond memories of a person, to recreate the sort of relationship that we have with them or had, and to relive significant moments in our lives. And this becomes particularly important when someone's absent, like a lover, or if they've changed in some significant way, like a baby who's now grown up, or if a person has died. And we typically treat these sorts of objects with, with a special care by wrapping them in soft cloths or putting them in special boxes uh, to sort of tuck them away and stop them getting damaged. We often label them to really pinpoint that moment in time. So we think, when was this? What was I doing? What was happening? How was I feeling? And how can I sort of recapture that when when I get these objects out again? Um, And so when we interact with these emotional objects, it's not not a normal way of looking at something. Uh, It's sort of gazing. You know, it's a sensory process. We're touching, gazing, handling, smelling really intently at these things and, and sort of using them almost like portals to, to, to bring a person back, to summon them, we think about how we feel about them uh, and really take ourselves to that set moment in time. Uh, and that's why some historians describe objects as time travellers because they can really take us back, take us back to that moment and help us to relive it in the present.
1: It's incredible to think that inanimate objects... Things that don't feel emotions on the face of it are capable of generating feelings with extraordinary amounts of power. And an old smartphone, as much as a lock of hair or a baby's blanket, could become an emotional portal, as Sally put it, taking us back to the feelings of another point in time. Unlike most emotional objects in the past, though, smartphones and apps can emote back at us, engage with us. They keep reinforcing our feelings, our connections. They don't just track how we feel. They make us feel. Which reminds me, I wonder how Thomas is getting on with those apps.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to look at the Emo app, which is one of the ones that Richard told me I should have a look at. So what I'm looking at is a screen that says, hi, how are you today? And it has got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten little faces around the uh, question in a circle. Uh, And they're really quite odd. Very almost childlike, weird little cartoon faces, like emojis, but less good. (laughs) And, you know, some are smiling, some are sad. It's really hard to tell. What emotions they're supposed to be. One that looks quite worried. One that looks is winking. One that is smiling but not winking. Uh, several that look really, really similar, just sort of a little bit sad.
1: So, hmm. I, I'm not feeling emo. Definitely that. wasn't working for I'm Thomas. To too simplistic and relying on emojis that were unfamiliar and hard to make sense of. I suggested he try Dalio instead, which is one of the most popular mood monitoring apps
0: so I'll just do a quick entry now for today. How are you? I can choose five, just from five options. Rad, which I think means very good, Uh, good, meh, bad, or awful. And they've got extremely simple emoji-like minimalist kind of faces to show me what those things mean. I'm going to go for meh in the middle. It then asks me for an activity. Um, This is slightly annoying in that you're only allowed to put good activities, so you can't put Um, you know, drinking wine, or eating cake, or lying on the floor crying, you know, you can only put family, friends, exercise, sport, relax, gaming, reading, cleaning, eating healthily, eating healthily, you can't just put eat, you have to put eat healthy. So it's a little bit pious, really, in the, the, the range of activities that it allows you to put in, which slightly annoys me. But then it has one nice feature that I have used a bit, which is you can add a photo. So it becomes a little bit more like a a Facebook post to yourself. And once you've done quite a few of these, as as I have, it gives you a nice little kind of photo diary to look back on uh, along with your moods over the last uh, few weeks or months. So although I feel a bit preached at by the range of healthy activities it offers me, um, I do like the ability to add a photo as well. So that's one nice thing about dailyo
1: As a tool for logging moods over time, in a kind of journaling way, Dalio seems quite useful. But as Thomas found, when feelings get a little darker or more intense, these upbeat mood tracking tools can make us feel worse, not better.
0: So one of the slightly annoying things about most of these apps is that that they uh, respond to your mood or emotion that you log with them by giving you a kind of um, motivational quote or a bit of sometimes really quite um, banal advice. So uh, as an example of this, I'm feeling terrible this morning, very bad morning, so I'm going to slightly exaggerate and uh, I'm going to log it on the mood meter. I'm going for the bottom left, low energy, unpleasant, um, Selection and I'm going for despair, which is like the worst really you can put in. So I didn't sleep very well, I'm feeling terrible, I'm not very hopeful about anything. Despair. Okay, next I'll say my current activity, which is work, and it describes despair for me the feeling that you are completely hopeless. Um, there's a bit of text as usual, so I can go, terrible morning. Okay, <laughs> um, and then it says. Uh, Given your current task and goals, do you want to maintain your current emotion, despair, or shift to a different emotion? So I'm going to say shift. I want to shift that despair. And (laughs) what I get, which is really laughable, is uh, a final screen Give me some advice. Reflect. Sit with your pet. That's it. I've got despair in my soul. And uh, the mood meter says, sit with your pet. And then it's got a, a, a quote from wayne dyer if you can change the way you look at things the things you look at change yeah but well, i'm not going to say out loud what i think of that so yeah i could possibly do without the uh, advice to look at my pets and look at things differently when i'm feeling despair in the morning
1: it looks like the apps aren't quite there yet but they aren't the only way that technology is being used to track and enhance people's emotional lives. There are also a lot of what are known as wearables. Spectacles, earpieces, bangles, even watches. Bits of tech you wear, hopefully to improve your quality of life. Most wearables are emotional only in the sense that they make things less stressful like directions projected onto the lens of your glasses as you navigate an unfamiliar city. But some developers, like Chloe Duckworth, are taking it a step further.
3: Yes, so I co-founded a company called Valence Vibrations about a year and a half ago, essentially with the aim of improving emotional perception across different communities of people. So helping autistic and ADHD people communicate with the neurotypical loved ones and vice versa because of something that we call the double empathy problem which essentially describes the fact that each person is interpreting the emotions of people they speak with by comparing it to their own baseline. And so it can be difficult to communicate with people of a different neurotype or culture because they're communicating their emotions using different tonal baselines and facial expressions. And so that's the problem that we're trying to solve with our company.
1: Chloe's company is creating what they call emotional transcription apps for things like Zoom and Apple Watch. The tech works by detecting audio and running it through a machine learning model that hopefully can identify different emotions and relay them back to the wear of the tech via vibrations or visual signals like changes in colour. You can then use the app to, for example, help you detect sadness in the voice of the person you're talking to.
3: As you're looking at your Zoom or a Microsoft Teams screen, you'll be able to see labeled emotions next to each person's name. So you can very quickly read the room and get the sort of average emotion of a lot of the different users on the call and, and also understand how individual people are feeling in response to things that you and other people are saying. The thinking here is that we are creating a new sensory stream for you to be processing emotional information in a very real-time way, so you don't have to be glancing down at a device or um, trying to pay attention to very complex facial expressions and vocal tone for someone that might be from a demographic that you haven't encountered or don't know how to perceive the emotions as well as your own demographic. And so the Apple Watch is actually delivering real-time vibrational feedback, encoding the emotions of the people that you're speaking with, and also the emotions of you as you are coming across to them so that you can understand how they might be perceiving you.
1: Interesting. What I like about this and the technology they're using is that it allows the technology to adapt to different cultures and communities of people. Different ways of expressing emotion are often found in what the historian Barbara Rosenwein calls emotional communities. Each emotional community has its own rules of behaviour and expression. Understanding these differences is something I think is very important and often missed by other developers who take an emotional one-size-fits-all approach. But although machine learning allows for technology to adapt to the users and their different emotional styles, I suspected that Chloe's product was still relying on the theory of basic emotions.
3: Yes, so we are relying on basic emotion theory. Richard, you probably are familiar with Mm -hmm. Paul Ekman's uh, field of research. We started with his six basic emotions, plus um, added neutral, because that was something that was um, very accessible in the early data sets that we were using. The basic emotions that Paul Ekman described were happy, sad, angry, disgust, surprise, and fearful. And then we added neutral as our seventh. Um, This started because we had access to open source Research databases that had essentially annotated vocal data with these emotions. And then we commissioned data through a variety of sources, starting with actually university students. So we had sort of a small study where we asked university students to say particular sentences in particular emotions. And then we also have access to a variety of other um, open source and licensed data. And then we're creating essentially ways within our apps to record more data from end users in real time with their permission.
1: For those who don't know, the idea of basic emotions is that there are a certain set of basic, evolved emotions that all humans share. There are a few competing versions of the theory, but the most famous are those of Paul Ekman, a brilliant researcher and giant of the effective sciences, who, along with another psychologist, Wallace Friesen, went to Papua New Guinea in the late 1960s to find an untouched tribe and see if they pulled the same emotional faces as are found in the West. It turns out he thought that they do. And this is a model of emotions so ubiquitous that the TV series Lie to Me was based on it and Disney used it as the basis for the film Inside Out. But there are a lot of issues with the theory of basic emotions, not least of which is that most of the recent research has shown that emotions are far from basic. Humans don't all pull the same faces when they feel certain emotions. Emotional expression is wide and varied, and those categories of emotion that Ekman thinks are basic, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, disgust and surprise, aren't as universal as once assumed. More up-to-date models of emotion, like the circumplex model of emotion, suggest that the only thing universal about our emotions is what is called core affect. How pleasant or unpleasant the feelings are, and how strongly or weakly we feel them. How we interpret and react to core affects depends on a lot of factors like our language, culture and upbringing, meaning there aren't just six emotions, but hundreds Maybe thousands. Andrew McStay is Professor of Digital Life at Bangor University and has published a book called Emotional AI, The Rise of Empathic Media. He also has concerns about the use of basic emotions theory.
6: It's interesting, isn't it, how computer science and affective computing have really latched onto this. Well, I, think, I think there's a degree of expedience about this, um, you know, because the kind of um, Ekman and Friesen's work, um, you know, the, the whole kind of facts-based model, it's very, very simplistic. You know, so it involves, for example, you know, kind of the overlaying of a kind of geodesic grid over the face so you can track muscles and movement, you know, and make inferences thereafter about what emotion a person is undergoing. Um, it's deeply, deeply, deeply questionable.
1: The method Andrew mentions here is based on another of Paul Ekman's ideas, that micro-expressions can be mapped and measured by drawing lines around the main muscle groups in the face to create a geodesic grid. The idea is that even if we try to hide our emotions, they are so deeply wired into our brains that our faces will still move, if ever so slightly. You might try to pull a happy face, but if you're sad, those muscles will move first, if only for a fraction of a second. It's a great theory for computers, because they can create these grids to map the face and use those, with the help of high-speed cameras, to spot micro-expressions. The problem with the theory is that, although there is some good evidence micro-expressions are real, the faces humans pull even the micro ones, vary between cultures. As well as worrying about the science behind emotion tracking, Andrew McStay has written a checklist of ethical guidelines for emotional technology. I asked him what he thought were the most pressing ethical worries about emotional AI. Yeah,
6: there there are a lot of them. But I think, you know, despite the fact that we've been talking about problems of accuracy and whether the technologies work or not, they're still collecting a lot of data about fundamentally intimate dimensions of human life. So even if we disagree, that these systems can know something about emotions because what emotions are is kind of still, so at least scientifically, ill-defined, they're still collecting a lot of data about bodies. And this data and decisions made on the basis of these data are reaching into increasingly intimate parts of human life, again, such as relation into education, insurance decisions, in terms of toys and kind of psychological interaction with children, in terms of kind of mental health, in terms of use in workplaces, in terms of cars and deciding whether a driver is angry or distracted, all of this kind of stuff. So I think in terms of the increasing prominence of kind of technologies in relation to intimate dimensions of human life, that for me seems problematic.
1: And what about the idea that these technologies and the data they harvest can be used to influence the public? Sending out targeted messaging in election campaigns, for example. Is that a dangerous future to be worried about? You know, I think it's
6: interesting that, you know, taking the example of elections, I don't think these systems and technologies are going to change people's minds. So if you have a strong view whatever your political disposition might be. I think all the kind of little micro-targeted ads, little nudges um, that kind of may be kind of served to a person on the basis of kind of um, profiling of emotion, I don't think you can change a person's worldview. But I think when it comes to people, you know, kind of swing voters and people, you know, kind of not so kind of sure either way, I think the use of profiling of emotion there in terms of use of that micro-targeting context, I do think there is scope to kind of tip the balance the other way. So I think we have to kind of be careful of kind of the binary answer there in terms of either yes or no. But I think there some cases there um, is definitely kind of a likelihood to do so. And I think we've seen that in, yeah, both kind of certainly kind of in the US and UK, but other places around the world as well. Mm -hmm.
1: It's a worry that people out there might know the intimate details of our emotional lives. We've already seen what can happen when companies like Cambridge Analytica use basic versions of this sort of profiling in political campaigns. But perhaps highlighting landscapes of feeling does have a use, particularly when acting as our pocket psychotherapist. An overview of how we feel and our emotional habits might be extremely useful, especially if it's based on a more sophisticated model of emotions. The last time we heard from Thomas and his mood monitoring experiment, he was in despair. But since then, he found reasons to be cheerful about at least one of the apps he tried out.
0: Today, I am going to record my mood in... Another one of these apps called Mood Notes. In some ways, this is my favorite, and I'll explain why. So I hit the little plus button to create a new mood. Now I have a face of a person. I swipe my thumb up and down the screen. As I go up, the little bloke with brown hair looks happier and happier. So I can choose awesome when he's really happy, good, quite happy, then okay, then bad, then terrible. So I'm going to choose good. Then I add details and I can choose an activity. There's a range of activities. I think the idea of this is that over weeks and months, you get to see patterns. You know, you're feeling really awesome when you've just been for a run or something. I mean, that doesn't apply to me, but that's the kind of thing I think they want you to be able to track. So I'm just going to say work because I've been working this afternoon. There's a little box when describe what's been going on. I'll put enjoying researching history of emotions. You see, history of emotions can be therapeutic. And now, this is the bit that is great about this app that I've not found on any other, which is you can choose multiple feelings at the same time and you can choose positive and negative in the same moment, in the same mood. Now, that to me is Brilliant because that is the reality of certainly my experience. That, like, right now, if I sort of introspect on myself, look in into my mind, I'm feeling enthusiasm and excitement about some of the discoveries I've made about emotion uh, words and their histories this afternoon, but also I'm feeling a bit anxious about how. The rest of the day is going to go a bit worried about my children and whether or not I'm going to lose my temper with them later. You know, a little tiny bit of existential dread may be mixed into the emotional recipe as well. Okay, so I'll choose excited, energized, enthusiastic. But also I'm going to choose anxious and worried. Then this one also has a couple of other features. It asks me what thought contributed to my negative feelings. And then I can select articles about different kinds of thinking traps. So this is really, if anyone uh, has done CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, that's exactly what this is. This is a CBT set of little tools saying, am I doing all or nothing thinking? Am I doing catastrophizing? I'm always doing catastrophizing. Am I doing emotional reasoning, which I make the mistake of thinking something is true because it feels true? And so on. So really useful. A lot of great t- tools there for some DIY CBT. So I'm going to save all of that and added that to my bank of moods in the app. So that is mood notes. Great for mixed feelings. Plus a bit of CBT.
1: Oh, good. He got there in the end. So back to the big question, is emotional tech going to create a disaster? Or does it have some use? Well, on one hand, I have a worry that the technology is pushing us into a sort of basic emotions dystopia, where because so many companies are relying on the idea that there are six basic emotions, people will find themselves forced into only thinking about those six, and not the hundreds of other feelings we experience in our day-to-day lives. And perhaps Andrew McState is right to be worried that governments and corporations might use the data they collect about how we feel for the wrong purpose. Be that to spend our money on the next soon-to-be-out-of-date craze or, worse, to get us to vote against our own interests. I'm also a bit uncomfortable with the idea of technology that can read other people's emotions It reminds me of the Babelfish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a creature that, by allowing anyone to understand and speak any language instantly without the hard work of learning about a language and its culture, was credited with causing more and bloodier wars than anything else in galactic history. Sometimes, not being able to read someone's emotions is important, be it at a poker game or at a business meeting do we really want our deepest, darkest feelings to be exposed for all to see at all times? On the other hand, as Thomas has found, not everyone is stuck in the basic emotions model. And when they do think beyond that, emotion tracking apps can be useful. In a world where our emotional health is increasingly under strain from war and pandemics and that most emotional of technology, social media, any Apple wearable that can help, even a little, can only be a good thing. And if the fond memories and comfort a cheap 80s watch brings me when I think about my dad or anything to go by... I can only imagine how powerful and life-changing apps and wearables that engage with people at times of crisis might become.
0: That was Living With Feeling. It was presented by Richard Firth Godby Here and produced by Natalie Steed. We're grateful to the Wellcome Trust for their generosity in making the series possible. To hear more episodes, subscribe to Living With Feeling on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more about our work by visiting the Emotions Lab website. Thank you for listening.